everyone, and welcome to the 34th episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. We have five episodes remaining of the season. That's including this episode today. The name's Christopher Brown. I'll be your host today. Since the launch of the podcast, I have been asked the same thing. Why are you doing this? And I give everyone the same answer. This podcast is about talking to people in an intimate setting and just having a conversation. So with that in mind, in 2019, I started this podcast to achieve one goal, get people talking again. With no notes, no questions, I sit down with the subject to learn about them from them. Today's guest is no exception to that. Today, I sit down with the deputy leader of the Green Party of Ontario, Abhijit Mane. We talk about his upbringing, his path to the Green Party of Ontario, the historic 2019 Ontario provincial election, which saw the first ever Green Member of Provincial Parliament elected, and how the Green Party of Ontario would handle certain issues differently than the current Ontario government. With that being said, here is Cross-Border Interviews featuring Abhijit Mane. Usually I would offer my guest a drink, but as we are about 3,000 kilometers away from each other, that's not going to happen anytime soon. So uh, sure. we'll just dive right into this. Um, thank you for doing this. And uh, my first question to all my guests is, where does your sense of duty come from? Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for that question. I think my my sense of duty comes from... That's such an interesting question. I think it comes from a place of um, childhood. Um, I think uh, it's ingrained deeply within me, um, especially through a very um, duty-driven family. Um, my, my grandfather was um, an MP back in India, um, and um, he was, you know, one of the earliest uh, member of parliaments uh, of independent India. And um, he actually was one of those rare politicians, you know, who essentially was driven by ideals. Um, and uh, he had the humility to not disclose any of his accomplishments or his achievements. Uh, and, you know, later now, even to this day, we don't know everything that he accomplished. Uh, most of the things we know, we know from other people. He himself never told us. Um, and I mean, that's the kind of ideal and model that I looked up to when I looked at and, and even after he lost his election. He went back to working as a social worker and as a clerk for, you know, a pharmaceutical company. Um, so my parents didn't grow up in, I mean, my dad didn't grow up in any kind of ostentatious, you know, luxury or anything. Uh, he grew up uh, lower middle class and, um, and that too in India back in the 60s. So that's very different from uh, Western middle class uh, as well. And uh, so he, you know, that kind of, those kinds of circumstances, I think, have infused a kind of perspective in me. And 
his fight for the most downtrodden in India have, uh, which is the lowest caste system, uh, as it's called there, um, kind of informed my opinion of the world. And so my sense of duty comes from always looking for the little guy because I, my identity and my family's identity has been shaped by that struggle. So uh, just to, just to clarify here, uh, your grandfather who served was your father's father? Or your mother's father? That is correct. Your father's father? Father's father. So did your father ever have a sense of going into the family business of politics as well? Or was that not his game? I think I think by the time my father was growing up, politics had become a very dirty arena in India. Um, and so maybe he was dissuaded from that uh, because of it. Um, and so... Yeah, because uh, but he, he has interest in history and politics and all that kind of stuff, but on a more spectatorial uh, aspect as opposed to getting right into it. Um, but no, I think uh, he was more um, interested. And, you know, like he tells me his vocational journey, essentially, like he, uh, you know, in India, like there's all especially back in the day, there was almost no like, you know, no, not having any plans for a career. He literally like just like asked his mom, like, you know, mom, I'm like graduating. Do you think I should go into commerce? His mom, my grandmother said, uh, no, like too many, uh, like your older brothers in commerce, he's in banking, you go into engineering. And he's like, okay. And so, <laughs> so he went into engineering. And so he's an engineer now. And uh, that's, that's how his, you know, vocational uh, journey took him to where he is now um and and it's so blasé and and um um you know so simple so it it's, it's they, they were products of very different times i suppose so when did your family come to canada because it sounds like your uh, father was born in india that's right and so was i actually okay um i was yeah we came to canada in 2005 which is not that far ago uh it's literally 15 years ago um and uh, actually completed 15 years just uh what's today the 29th so five days ago april 24th uh 2005 wow so yeah so i was i was actually 15 when i came to canada so it's been I've spent as many years in India now as I have in Canada, so they're both equal. But so how how does a child from India decide I'm going to get into politics in Canada? Was it that sense that your uh, you knew from your grandfather about giving back and your family as well, or was it was it an election that was happening at the time? Because 2005 would have been provincially you didn't have a federal election provincially 2003 2007, so you didn't have a provincial one as well. So no. how how did you get into politics in in Canada? Right. So I, I got into politics a little later. Um, I was obviously, you know, just trying to learn uh, the system before. I remember civics class in grade 10 was one of my favorites, just kind of getting to learn the system. And it's, I mean, it's a Westminster system, so it's not that different from India's. And so it was a very easy way to uh, learn. Um, uh, And so uh, the transition wasn't that hard uh, about just the systemic knowledge of everything. Um, But the interest of it actually came about much later, maybe first year of university or like last year of high school. Um, And uh, a lot of it was driven mainly by um, the provincial election of 
2000. When when was that? So two provincial elections ago, essentially. So 2018, then 2014, 20... and so okay. 2010. Oh, okay. The the election yeah. I lost my job in. <laughs> yeah. And so basically um, that was the one which kind of uh, got me interested in it. And one of the biggest impetuses for me like to push me towards uh, politics actually was, I mean, obviously my family history uh, and learning more about my grandfather, but also uh, watching the show The West Wing, you know, like, I mean, I'm just a big, big fan. And that vision of a government working for the better of people that's not you know i mean that's why i love i love star trek right because it's a vision of a better tomorrow it's not uh something rooted in reality for example um that you yeah, know kind of pushes and grinds you down and be like look this is how bad we are it it, it elevates you and gives you a vision to aspire to uh, and so that's why i loved uh, the west wing and um and that's kind of what propelled me uh, towards looking for options. And so my first um, encounter with politics actually was work for was, uh, volunteering and then working for a liberal MPP um, in Ontario and here Which in one? the GTA. Uh, Deepika Damarla. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, basically worked in our office, got to know the the uh, uh, way politics is done uh, in Ontario. Um, and uh, it was a it was a great learning experience. And I mean, I have immense respect for Deepika. Uh, I think she is a fantastic um, uh, representative. And now she's in uh, the Nisaga City Hall. So, so, so yeah, that's so, kind of how I got into politics. So how does your journey come go from working in a campaign office for the Ontario Liberals to being the Green Party co-deputy leader? Sure. So, so, um, so. Um, because that 2011 election was a hard-fought election between the PCs and the uh, Liberals, and there was a major issue around that at the time. There was two major issues, one being the gas uh, plant scandal, and then also the other one would, was the uh, sex education uh, teaching in school, because that was the first introduction McGinty at the time, the Premier at the time, had announced that. Uh, so... Um, Going from that election to where you are now, so let's let's go through that process. So after that election, I'm assuming you were still in university at the time. That's right. Yeah, I, I finished my uh, undergrad in 2012. Um, after which, I for two years I was just sort of, um, you know, uh, taking a bit of a respite. Um, I went and traveled uh, a bit. I traveled to Ladakh, which is the Indian part of Tibet, essentially, and um, taught at a Buddhist monastery school for about four months. Um, it was uh, I taught like secular education. I taught science, math, and English. So what was that um, experience like? Let's just talk about that. Was, that, just, that just opens up a can of worms because yeah, I didn't yeah. expect to hear that from you. Yeah, so it was it was actually one of the most uh, important and um, profound moments of my life in terms of direction because um, that's where I learned how passionate I was about education. And uh, so uh, that happened, you know, like 2013 was kind of a, a rough year personally. And so I just wanted to get away from it all sort of. And so I found this volunteering opportunity um, uh, through something called HELP, which is a Himalayan Education Lifeline Program. And they essentially 
uh, have um, these volunteer opportunities set up where they pair you up with schools in the Himalayas. So you can choose uh, either the Indian part of the Himalayas, Bhutan or Nepal. And uh, I chose... I chose Ladakh because I'd never been there. I'd, oh, there's different parts of, you know, Bhutan is hard to get into because of visa issues. Nepal I'd been to. So I was like, you know what, maybe let's try uh, Ladakh because um, I always wanted to go there and here's an opportunity. And the Himalayas was one of my favorite places to ever go into. Like growing up in India, we always used to go to the Himalayas for our summer trips. And so just had fond memories. And, um, and so I decided Ladakh and then we went there uh, lived in a homestay with um, uh, a family of farmers, really, and um, you know they were very sweet. Um, for they like I, most of their homestay guests were you know Westerners who uh, were either Caucasian or or of Indian heritage, but couldn't speak the language. And because I could speak the language, I could communicate directly with them, and so we formed a very strong bond. And uh, and the school was like a five minute walk in the village and it was beneath a little Buddhist monastery. And so the monks were my students, uh, monks ages five to 12, uh, the ones who were learning to become monks. And so uh, these children essentially, yeah. Um, and uh, so basically- So just on that, um during that time, during those four months that you're there, you're you're engaging with the community, you're uh, being able to communicate, like you said, with the uh, residents of the, uh, the community. Um, what are you learning about yourself? Because I know you say you 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 found your love of education, but what are mm-hmm. you personally learning about yourself? Because, like you said, you were going through a rough time in 2013 to go do this. So, what were you learning right. about yourself? Because to do that, a you're leaving your family, b you're going back to your home country. So, what are you trying to find for yourself? And did you find it? Right. Yeah, I think it was just a sense of place in the world. I think that that question of of duty, I think, comes it comes back to you because I think essentially what you find is that even at your most um, like I, I, even when you like are at your lowest point uh, of of life uh, there is a certain um, regenerative and recuperative um, ability for uh, the mind to heal itself when you help other people. Um, and so I think that's something that really uh, was driving me. Um, and I think I also chose Ladakh because I, um, like my family, we're, we're Buddhists. And so uh, um, we, like, you know, I wanted to visit a place that is kind of steeped in the culture and get to know a little bit about Buddhism itself. Uh, we follow a different form of Buddhism, which is the Theravada style, which is more prominent in Sri Lanka, Thailand, okay. and India, whereas Tibetan Buddhism is more Mahayana, uh, which is uh, the more like Chinese, Korean, Tibetan Buddhism. And uh, so, uh, but but just to get in touch with those roots as well. Um, and um, the... I mean, learning about meditation, you know, like that was one of the the biggest gifts there. Although I had started learning a little bit even in Canada through a temple that I visited in Mississauga. And um, uh, yeah, just all those things coming together beautifully kind of to form almost a like give me a sense of serenity uh, that I had 
been lacking and and that that purpose that that drive uh to centrally help people um so that i think gives give that is i think the greatest source of purpose and and duty for me is is the ability to help people as best i can um because at the end of the day that is what alleviates suffering not only yours but others as well so after those four months you decide okay i'm gonna uh, it was it just a four-month term or was it just four months that you stayed there and then you decided to come back to canada so what what what, what transpired just the four months yeah, so it was a. It, it, they say that you can stay there as long as you want, really. Um, but um, I, I had, I had first decided maybe two months, and then we go, and then I extended it to four months. So it was kind of arbitrary, but at the same time, it was also because I wanted to come back and apply for a master's program uh, here in Canada. Okay, so so you come back yeah. to Canada in 2014, I'm assuming, or 2013 still. No, the 2013 still. Okay, so you come back in um, 2013. I applied for a master's for 2014. And now, um, what what school, if you don't mind me asking, because I've got to ask, because if you don't say my school, my university that I went to, then I'm going to have to boo you. So what school? Okay. <laughs> I, I, I went to U of T. Oh, I'm a Queens man, so. Oh, you're Queens, yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> but yeah, I did my undergrad at McMaster, but I did my um, uh, my uh, master's at uh, U of T. Okay. And I did it in education. Um, and so. So um, that trip was kind of what like underscored the importance of education for me. And so I decided, hey, you know what? I want to do something in this um, for for my career. So at any time, and I've got to ask this question because your father asked his mother, at any time did you just go to your mother and say, what should I do after high school? No, no, because <laughs> it was actually very much, very much the opposite there. Is, you know, um, they're both my parents come from, you know, uh, families that like my dad's side of the family predominantly most people are engineers and on my mom's side of the family predominantly most people are in healthcare uh, and so um, either doctors or dentists um, and so my mom wanted me to go into medicine uh, and I actually was the one who kind of opposed that and and so it was, it was very much the other way so like you can see the generational divide there yeah. as well about how different uh, the generations in India are now as opposed to back uh, in the day um, and so it's uh, it's very much indicative of, of um, what it's like now the, the kind of uh, decisions that are kind of rooted in your own ability um, rather than what your parents tell you to do. True. So uh, you're at the UFT, University of Toronto, doing your master's. Uh, at this time, mm -hmm. have you are you still f trying to find a political home or have you decided that the Ontario Greens and the Green Party would be your political home at that time? No, uh, it still wasn't. Um, and um, I mean, uh, you know, I, I still had roots uh, within the Liberal Party and uh, still had ties there with many friends. Um, but kind of what, what, what was the kind of the moment that I decided no was actually pretty recent. It was when uh, Prime Minister Trudeau reneged on um, uh, electoral reform. Um, and that kind of was the... Um, uh, catalyst that kind of drove me away because I mean there were obviously things that I didn't agree with with the party especially the big machine that is the big that is the liberal party um, and you know um, there 
there are things that you don't agree with that go on. But uh, that was the big catalyst that was just can't do this anymore. Okay, but and especially because I thought of my grandfather again. And I... Sorry, go ahead. No, oh, I was going to say because the 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 f- first inclination is if you leave the uh, Liberal Party, uh, typically you don't go to the Conservatives. Sometimes you do if you're an MP. It seems like if you floor cross, you floor cross to the Conservatives, but. Sure. Um, if you leave the Liberal Party, you would go to the NDP because they're a little bit more socially uh, left of the Liberal Party. Because as as the saying in since 1993, the Liberals run to the left and govern to the right. So you think you would just go to the NDP. But you decided sure. to go to the Green Party. So what? Well, again, yeah. So, I mean, it, it it's it's uh, important that you brought that up is because I did uh, I did look at the NDP as well. Um, and I did attend a few meetings here and there. But what I found about the NDP. NDP that kind of turned me off was that there was a perpetual sense of anger within the party. Uh, you know, there's just everything has to be fight the machine. And I mean, I understand because the roots of the party are uh, activist based, uh, especially in labor. And um, and so that kind of culture makes sense. But it wasn't something that was appealing to me. Um, I I found it too um, not stressful per se, but like too much driven by angst. And so when I finally then looked at the Greens, I was like, oh my God, like this is such a breath of fresh air because the optimism and the hope driving the 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 change aspect of things was very inviting especially when i looked at mike schreiner um i looked at the gpo way before i looked at the gpc although i knew more about elizabeth than i did about mike um but i i looked at mike uh mike's speeches his um his events and the different interviews he did uh, in the media. And it was just like this man, weirdly enough, reminded me of my grandfather um, who, you know, was just kind of plain spoken, was um, um, just honest with the people and had a genuine sense of being. And so I thought that let's give this a look. Finally um, called uh, and attended a few events and then and then I actually called Amy uh, Watson, who's our, who was then our director of political um, engagement. Uh, and then she, I asked her, you know, I, I've worked in a campaign before, yada yada. Would you, uh, would you uh, want my help? I sent her my resume and everything. And then she replied saying, actually. In elections coming up, would you like to be a candidate? And, and I was like, well, I mean, you know, I'm in my 20s. Uh, I'd never thought that I'd be a candidate this early in life. Um, and but I thought about it. I talked to my girlfriend. I talked to my parents, and um, eventually, um, I said, okay, you know what? Might as well do it. Why not? Um, so that was 2018. Um, and that was my first uh, electoral campaign. So let's talk about that 2018 election, because um, you ran in the riding of Mississauga Streetsville, which uh, right. for the listeners is uh, Mississauga is just west of Ed, uh, Toronto and Streetsville is in the northwestern part of Mississauga. So right. um, you were going up against a incumbent who has been there since 2003, uh, 2003 sorry. That's right. So um, who uh, 
I forget his name. Uh, I think it's Brian. Bob Delaney. Bob Delaney. Um, he was the government house leader at one time. Uh, yep. He, he well, I'm assuming, well known in the community, unless if you're not well known to get reelected that many times. Yeah. The winds are changing in Ontario in the 2018 election. Kathleen Wynne's not popular. Mm-hmm. You have a big challenge on your hands for this election because yep. the Greens are not not in the legislature. Mm-hmm. Why do it then? Because you could have said no to uh, the person, but you decided yes, I'm going to do it. So what what was the initial, the final nail that said, okay, I'm going to put my name forward? Yeah, so I think there was a three pronged. Um, uh, thought process that went into there. The first one being, I'm young. Um, I have a lot of time to do this. Um, I can, and and this is an opportunity to learn. Um, and so that was one of the biggest uh, factors that went into it. The second one being, um, why not? I mean, you know, if if you if you are doing this just because you want to win and not because you want to make a difference, then you're in it for the wrong reasons. Um, electability and all those issues are. Are not the ones that should be driving your decision uh, to run for something. Um, and uh, the third one being that the main goal of the party in 2018 was actually to, you know, get our foot in the door by making sure that Mike Schreiner wins in Guelph. And so that was a massive effort for uh, on behalf of the Green Party of Ontario. And that was an amazing learning opportunity because all the lessons that we learned in 2018 in Guelph were uh able to be replicated or at least learned by other green campaigns across the country as well, um, including PEI, where they went from, um, you know, a couple of seats to becoming the uh, official uh, opposition of the of the island uh, government. The um, New Brunswick Greens who tripled from one to three and then federally as well. So all these lessons that learned in Guelph were so instrumental. And obviously, Guelph learned a lot of lessons from the BC Greens um, and uh, and the New Brunswick and PEI Greens. So it's all a, a, a very cumulative learning process. And, you know, as I've traveled across the country uh, helping on different campaigns, I've learned that as well. Um, but essentially, uh, those three reasons were what drove me to say, yeah, let's do this. Um, and again, even in my campaign, I, I, can, I canvassed my writing mostly in the evenings and um, sometimes on uh, weekends, but most of the most of my effort as well went uh, to volunteering for Guelph and making sure that Mike wins. And uh, glad I did. But at the same time, it must be it must be um, because I, I put my name on a political sign before. To see your name on a political sign, to see your name on the ballot for the first time, is overwhelming to anyone because you're sure. you're you're putting your, yourself out there in a public way, and people if uh, if you're like was anything like my election have defaced signs uh, called you threatened you while you've put your foot on doorsteps so sure. to do that and to see your name on that ballot on election day or advanced voting day what was that feeling like for you yeah I mean it was uh, it was a moment of pride uh, I was incredibly proud of myself uh, uh, to be able to you know and not in a not in a overtly proud way uh, not over confidence but just a sense of uh 
this is this is kind of amazing that you know I would never have thought of doing this when I first came to Canada, 2005, um, and uh, here I am. So I mean, it was it was a it was a moment of gratitude as well, you know, to all those people who got me here because obviously nothing you do in life is just the product of. Your hurts like that entire argument of bootstrap, you know, pulling yourself by the bootstrap. I, I heartily disagree with it because I think all of our lives are documents of everyone's efforts to get us to one, to the point where we are. Um, and so, I think that was that was something that definitely was going through me. But also, is it was a little surreal, you know, like is just a moment, just this um, idea of you seeing your name and you know the person like when you go and give your ID to the elections Ontario official and he sees your name and he's like, are you the candidate? I'm like, yes, I am. <laughs> and so it was, it's, it's just kind of cool, you know? And so, um, yeah, all those, all those moments, uh, definitely very memorable. Um, and, and yeah, there were obviously, you know, signs were defaced. I remember one of my sign was actually burnt, uh, <laughs> and, in this uh, neighborhood down um, uh, like in Meadowvale um, and uh, yeah like you know a bunch of people but for the most part it was a very positive experience people were so kind they were and I think that's one of the things you get when you're running as a green is because you know uh, I suppose especially back in those days now we're becoming more electable so people feel threatened uh, but back in the day when you know we uh, especially in 2018 uh, in suburban riding like Mississauga people are just kind to you because they're like oh it's a green uh, and so you know it's um, it's it's kind of like um, uh, I, I saw that I saw that the nastiness between the liberals and the and the conservatives was on high gear, but we were spared from that for the most part. And also in the debates, you know, we, I, I represented the party in the Mississauga uh, city debate, the Mississauga Board of Trade debate, and local uh, Streetsville debates as well. And so. First, very first debate was, you know, it was all right. It was my first debate. I did okay. People were, I pleasant, I was pleasantly surprised with myself. And then eventually, as the campaign moved on, I started feeling more and more comfortable with it. Especially the biggest one was the Mississauga Matters debate, which was at City Hall, you know, hosted by the mayor, Mayor. Uh, Mayor Crombie, and um, it was a huge undertaking, and to be able to represent and kind of hold my ground against Charles Sousa, you know, who's the, who was then the finance minister, and um, and and make sure uh, the vision of the Greens came forward. It was a it was a great it was a great moment, and um, and I think a lot of people came up afterwards to me and and actually said you know i mean thank because like most of those debates were the conservatives and the and the liberals sniping at each other and so i was the only one sort of answering the questions and so many so many people came up to me and said thank you for being the adult in the room i mean you know uh so it was um it was definitely a very humbling and enriching experience so uh, i'm gonna ask a question i apologize if it's insensitive um did you uh your grandfather is he still alive no. Okay, I apologize for that because I was going to ask if you had talked to him before you put your name forward. Um, yeah. <coughs> pardon me. Um, so at this time during this election, you're not the deputy co-deputy leader of the party at the time, right? You no, decide to no, put your name. You decide to put your name forward in 2019. 
And, no, so uh, in 2018 itself, after the election, um, the, there were the party uh, provincial executive elections. Um, in September, uh, we had a convention coming up. And so that's when the result was going to be declared. But, um, you know, a lot of folks came up to me and essentially said that, um, you know, they liked what they saw from me in the provincial elections and said that perhaps I should consider running for um, deputy leader. And so, again, even there, you know, I was kind of a little dumbstruck and thought that, I mean, again, I'm, I'm just starting and I, I was I am still pretty new to the party compared to a lot of people. Um, but uh, just they just said, you know, I mean, kind of should think about it. And so I did. And again, I thought, why not? It's a learning experience. You um, I'm able to represent a party that I deeply believe in, uh, that I think is the future of this country. Um, and I think is something that should be represented uh, at all levels uh, and with the enthusiasm and passion that I can bring to it. And so uh, that's kind of what drove me to say, let's let's do that. And and did you talk to Mike beforehand? I did. Yeah, I talked to Mike um, and um, I mean, Mike said, you know, yeah, you should definitely go for it because um, I mean, Mike's always encouraging to anyone who wants to run uh, for for uh, any kind of leadership position within the party. Uh, he's incredibly supportive of uh, especially young greens. Um, and, um, you know, he he is uh, a big reason of why I'm here. So let's get into the meat and potatoes of this now. So um, Mike, being the, uh, Mike, the leader of the Green Party, became the first sitting M- uh, MLA, uh, MPP, sorry, MPP. In, yeah, it's Ontario. Yeah, MPP. sorry. I, I, I even worked at Queen's Park, and I always forget that now that I live in Alberta. Um, sure. So first MPP in all of Ontario to ever be elected. Um, that's a huge milestone for the Green Party. Uh, like you said, all resources went into Guelph during that election. What has changed for the Green Party now that he's in uh, Queen's Park? I mean, a lot. Uh, I mean, even like, you know, the the smallest things, like the amount of media attention we get, it's it, it's all earned media. I mean, you know, there's uh, we don't have to go about pleading to people to feature us in panels or things of that nature. There's just a sense of uh, legitimacy that comes with uh, a representative at Queen's Park. Um, and so that. Uh, that has made us. Um, that has made made it much easier for us to be able to capitalize and push our ideas and uh, into the into the fore essentially. And 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 people are taking notice. I mean, you know, it, there are so many articles written about Mike um, about how he is the most effective opposition leader. Um, you know, even even subduing a lot of NDP attempts at times because. He is not again like uh, that that factor that I mentioned earlier about the NDP because it being driven a lot by anger uh, and angst. Uh, after a while, it it isn't as effective. It's not a sustainable strategy because the outrage after a while die like it gets drowned uh, in the noise of it all. Uh, and so 
effective criticism comes when it's constructive and it's based on ideas of what you would do different. And that's what Mike's always been able to do best is that he criticizes the government, but he does so in a way that tables an idea and a vision of what we would do differently. And that I think is very appreciated by most people. Um, Similarly, uh, even during the uh, COVID-19 crisis, I mean, Mike has been appreciated and applauded uh, for the fact that he has, you know, supported the government where necessary, but at the same time also criticized it when they fell short. Um, and his speech during the emergency session said it all. It's He said, you know, I don't mind what's in this bill. I mind what's not in this bill. What's missing from this bill is that's the problem. And so that's the kind of, you know, balanced approach that's being appreciated by everyone. So, okay. In a perfect world, your earned media would get you coverage everywhere. Ontario is a huge province, north, south, east, west. Uh, I'm assuming you have to take on responsibilities as co-deputy leader to be at events when Mike can't be. How is the outreach going, though? Are you seeing more people come to party events or with not right now with COVID-19? But Mm -hmm. since the election, have you seen an increase in memberships? Are you seeing more people say, you know what, it's time to give the Green Party a look? Yeah, absolutely. We're seeing uh, tons of interest. Um, I mean, you know, my social media, uh, even in a day, I often at least get one or two messages from people who are just interested interested in working and I have to redirect them to organizers um, and tell them, you know, so our, our ability to um, take in the amount of volunteers that are and the interest that's coming in uh, need, needs to be ramped up to meet it. Uh, like uh, our capacity needs to be increased. Our memberships are increasing. We're way above 5,000 and this was last year. So right now I'm sure it's even higher than that. Um, and uh, fundraising is fantastic. I think actually after the election for a while we were out fundraising the liberals um and uh, you know i mean that's just a testament to the fact of how well this party is doing uh provincially um and the greens also uh, are seen again like i said as a very potent opposition uh and the ability to uh essentially balance that opposition is is um is a very constructive uh, uh um component of, of Ontario politics today. And so, um, yeah, I think, I think there's a certain amount of, um, outreach that's coming, not just from, uh, the citizens of Ontario, which is, you know, the most important part, but also all aspects of society as well, including media. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I I represent the party uh, at public events. Uh, I represent the party for media interviews. Did a few of them uh, even during the federal election for the GPC, um, and um, and so yeah, it was it was it's definitely you know as Mike actually gets much more uh, much more busy at Queens Park, a lot of the party building responsibilities, especially, fall on uh, me and Bonnie, who's my co-deputy leader, and. Um, and so uh, a lot of the CAs and um, um, the on the ground 
meetings kind of things uh, are the are the things that we attend um, and kind of build the party from ground up. Um, that those responsibilities are falling more on us as deputy leaders and also the rest of the provincial executive as well. So uh, you talked about it a bit, but I'm gonna uh, the the. The biggest thing I see about with the Greens, and I want I want you to clarify this for me, is everything can be going great for the Greens. We saw this in the uh, twenty nine uh, the last federal election. Poll numbers are on the rise. Voters are turning to the Greens, and then the moment, like a week before the election, things start to go wrong because people then start going back to the Liberals, back to the Conservatives because they don't want the other party in power. So how do right. you keep those uh, swing voters to say, you know what, take a chance on the Greens because um, let's be honest, the Greens should have won a lot more seats in the last election because they were right. aiming to get, get 10, potentially 12, but they ended with three. Yes, three's a lot for the right. Greens, but how do you grow when people are still so ingrained of, I don't want the other party to win, I want this party to win, because they're a little bit more safer bet than those that party? Right. And I mean, the... The, the long-term solution and the best solution to that is electoral reform, right? I mean, that's one of the reasons why <laughs> I became a Green, uh, was because I think a fair voice uh, is an important aspect of a fair society. Um, now you're looking at all the dynamics that go into a minority government at play here uh, during the COVID crisis. And I think one of the reasons, I mean, Kudos to the liberals for all that they're doing. And uh, I really, uh, I think credit where credit is due. But I think one of the aspects that we're not looking at is that it is a minority government and a lot of opposition parties input is being accepted by the government um, and and that would not have been the case if it was a majority government. So that's the beauty of a minority government is that all these uh, different um, uh, parties can work with each other uh, and make sure that the most amount of Canadians are represented in whatever the government does. Um, and I think so that's the that's I think the appeal of electoral reform. Uh, and any kind of proportional uh, representative system. Um, so that's the long-term uh, solution to uh, making sure that more Greens win. I mean, if there was uh, a proportional representative system in um, in the election, we would have had more than 20 seats uh, this past election. I mean, and then you can see the um, absolute inequity of this system in the fact that the Bloc and the Greens both got about the same amount of uh, votes and the Bloc got 30 seats and the Greens got three. So that kind of discrepancy is uh, very indicative of a very broken system. Yeah. Um, the short term uh, answer really uh, lies in the fact that I think you have to prove to people that um, wherever we've won in the first past the post system, it's where we had we were within um, almost like within your shot of winning in the past election. So the ability to show people that we're this close and then people uh, then take a chance on you. So you have to essentially have a long run campaign in mind when you decide to run for the Greens and you have to build a credibility, you have to build name recognition in your writing. And over time, people will trust you as your numbers go up and uh, eventually you'll reach a certain threshold after which you are then um, now in, 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 the, in the game. We look 
So Mike is a member of a party of one right now. In in sense, he's a party of one in Queens Park. He he has a great organization behind him right now. Um, looking forward to two years from now, 2023, 2021. Next year, 2022. 2022. 2022. So 2022. In a perfect world, and I and I hate to be the guy who asks to guess or to predict, what's a what's a win for you? To keep the seat or to expand, double, triple? I in an ultimate world, government. <laughs> but sure. let's let's let let's let's call it what it is. If you guys sure. can win five, is that a win for you? To win double, what's a win to you? Yeah, I think I think uh, a win is um, making sure that uh, our ideas are are heard in the government. Similarly, so so essentially, to to a minority government would be ideal. Is what would be ideal. So um, I think. I think it, it, it's not wrong to be ambitious to look at gov- to look at forming government and saying you know that's our goal um, because why not I think Mike would be an amazing premier um, but uh, in terms of maybe not this election maybe the next election but um, looking looking at uh, uh, the next election as a what what would qualify as a win I think the best win would be to make sure that a green um, uh, green ideas and green values are incorporated within the very uh, crux of the government. And so being an essential part of government uh, would be would be a very uh, a very effective way of uh, of delivering victory. I think something like what's what's happening in BC, for example, where the Greens and the NDP are working together, or even in PEI where the Greens and the Conservatives are working together. I mean, it just shows you how versatile Greens can be in uh, our cooperative and our collaborative politics. What's the biggest environmental issue facing Ontario right now? I think the biggest one has to be. Um, well, there's 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 a bunch of different ones. I mean, the biggest one obviously has to be climate change, um, and um, the ability to mitigate those things. But climate change itself, you know, breaks down into so many different facets of how the problem presents itself. Anywhere from flooding to forest fires to um, um, even uh, pristine farmland being paved over because of development, um, uh, or even um, uh, uh, the green belt itself being attacked, um, and so all those different aspects um, of environmental um, protections need to be put into place, especially now because climate change is ramping up. And 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 what this crisis, the COVID crisis, has taught us is that we have the capacity to do that. We have the capacity to make these massive, drastic changes to our lifestyle uh, that can be inconvenient at times, but at the end of the day, help us towards a more safe and um, a more um, sustainable uh, life. And one of the biggest, biggest, uh, I would say, uh, being from uh, the Durham ride, well, the now, I always get this wrong, Peterborough, Northumberland, Peterborough South, I think it's called, and uh, the old Durham riding, um, windmills were starting to pop up when I was just leaving, and the opposition to those was prominent uh, because people just had misinformation. Is Do you find that misinformation is the biggest reason people just don't want to uh, look at fixing the climate issue, or is there another underlying issue, do you believe? 
I think it's, uh, I mean, misinformation or disinformation, one of them, I don't know, both really, uh, because there is a, uh, an active campaign of disinformation uh, that is also being propagated by people who don't want uh, climate change uh, it, um, it measures to be um, implemented. To be uh, implemented. Thank you. <laughs> Just had a little bit of a Wednesday brain fart. No worries. Um, and so basically, um, that plays that plays an aspect uh, to the to the problem. But I think there's also a deeper issue of people just being a little hesitant to um, major systemic changes. But again, the the information aspect of it is so crucial there because that kind of tells you um, about how not hard this can be um so for example i think the again like i want to i don't want to drop too many uh, parables to the covid crisis but one of the things that has been done so effectively um has been um the communication to uh canadians uh by our healthcare officials uh public health officials and that kind of communication because it is so ingrained within us to trust doctors um i think we need to have that same um respect for climate scientists or for any kind of uh green proponents because that that um those ideas are also being driven by that exact same science and so um i i think there's value for putting scientists and uh and experts to the fore and because i think people trust them way more than politicians <laughs> i think when i saw the last po- poll of trusted uh professionals politicians was second last yeah <laughs> So I don't I mean, I don't blame them because there's quite a few bad ones, but then they make the good ones look bad, too. Yeah. Um, so if I'm not mistaken and correct me if I'm wrong, you are the critic for the Green Party for health, correct? Health and long term care. Yeah. Health, health and long term care. Sorry. Each province has health as a different name. So, yeah, uh, no, because even here it was health, health and long term care were one ministry. And then after I got the portfolio much later, uh, they became two different ministries. But I've kept both portfolios. So. OK, so health and long term care. Um with COVID-19 rampant in all of the world right now, uh, from your perspective, how is the Ontario government doing with the COVID-19 response around health care? Yes. Yeah, so I think it's a bit of a, a mixed basket because um, there there are things that they're doing right and then there are things that they're doing not that well. Um, so the things that they got right uh, have been, you know, the kind of messaging that's been done by Premier Ford has been uh, very appropriate. Um, and uh, the empathy that he's expressing is is definitely uh, helpful. Um, the uh, kind of solidarity towards public health uh, officials to towards uh, public sector employees in general has been very uh, refreshing. And um, uh, the the things that he's done not that well have been all the measures that have not filled the gap between the federal initiatives and what could have been. Um, so, I mean, you know, topping up the payments for students, for example, from 1250 to given 
in a provincial grant so that it goes up to 2000 like the rest of the people on CERB, um, whether that's um, making sure that people with disabilities, um, you know, who's on ODSP or OW, uh, Ontario Works, uh, are, are compensated fairly because they're pay- getting paid so much less compared to people on CERB or even the student benefit. Um, then there's also... There's also um, the um, the different uh, initiatives like uh, making sure that rent is taken care of uh, and rent relief is provided. So there are different – there's things that the government has done well and things that they haven't done well. And we're making sure that we push them to do the things that they haven't done um, to make them do well. What's the one thing you would want them to implement tomorrow? If you were in power, what would you implement tomorrow that would ensure uh, support for all Ontarians – across the board. I think, I mean, May 1st is coming up. Today is the 29th. I think it's important that rent relief is brought forward as in, like immediately because people literally don't have enough sometimes to to go um, to that next month. I mean, we all know how precarious some jobs are nowadays, especially in this economy. And uh, so people are scared that they won't be able to um, have uh, their apartments to shelter and uh, for or their their homes to shelter and uh, for the few for the next few months. And I think that's something that kind of anxiety needs to be addressed immediately um, and not be left to the benevolence of land lords um and uh uh there there needs to be i mean the the government did bring in um a uh, a freeze on evic- on evictions but they didn't ban them completely and uh, so what that means is that the evictions um uh they they can't be the evictions can't be uh enforced by by uh the province but uh if landlords decide to lock you out Really? They can. Yeah. So there's this like weird loophole uh, built in there, which means that the ban itself, like you need a complete ban in order to make sure that landlords cannot evict you. But in in this case, it it would mean that. Um, so if you leave the apartment and someone then like changes the lock or things of that nature. Uh, you can you have to take them to court as opposed to because uh, no one the, the cops won't come to uh, enforce the eviction. Wow, that's yeah. mind-boggling. I think it's similar yeah. to what is happening out here in Alberta and probably across the country. There's a few provinces that are exceptions, but mm-hmm. um, I agree that people need to be looked after and. A roof over your head is the number one thing during a, pan- a health pandemic, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, and 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 the other issue also being uh, looking after our um, homeless population because uh, how do you how do you do physical distancing or social distancing without a roof over your head? Um, and so those I think those two things I think need to be needed because they are the need of the hour. So um, and. I'm going to turn a little bit of a page here, and I'm going to put my Albertan hat on here, and I apologize for this question. What's your stance on pipelines? What's that? What's your stance on pipelines? Bringing pipelines. Oil, through, uh, oil to market, because um, 
the Ontario government now believes that they're a good thing and we should be getting Alberta's oil to market because we should be less reliant on Saudi Arabia's oil. Elizabeth May, I think even a week ago, every day seems like a blur right now. So it could have been like a month ago, two weeks ago, I uh, said sure. that we should be relying more on Alberta's pi- um, oil sands. So what is the Ontario Green Party's position on uh, pipelines? Because I know. Yeah, so I mean, oh, go ahead. I'll I'll answer my ask my next next question next. Okay. Um. So currently, actually, we we are looking at um a bunch of different pipelines that the even the Ontario government is pushing forward. Uh, the biggest one being the Enbridge pipeline in Hamilton, which is a fracked gas pipeline. Is that line um, nine? Sorry. Is that line nine? I don't know if it's called that. I I just remember it being called the Embridge, but okay. I think it might be it might be Line Nine. I think you're right. Okay. Um. But but essentially, it runs through Hamilton, and it's a fracked gas pipeline. And we are up op- we are opposed to it because obviously fracked gas is an incredibly environmentally damaging way to extract natural resources. And on top of that, uh, Hamilton recently had a sewage leak, uh, which the government um, didn't both provincial and municipal governments didn't uh, release that information and it was leaked to the press essentially um, and that's how it came out and so um, it it's causing massive um, a, a, de- a massive deficit of trust between the government um, especially when it comes to pipelines and so we're we're definitely opposed to um, the kind of increase in fossil fuel uses um, I think in order to transition to what we call a clean and caring economy, I think there needs to be a just transition where you take the skill sets and the uh, the abilities that oil and gas workers have accumulated over their years uh, in the oil patch and deploy those to uh, re um, uh, to converting the economy into a greener and a cleaner economy, um, because that's where I think we forget that you know at the end of the day, as much as you can rage against oil and gas, the, there are people involved um, in in the in the daily activities, and and those people need jobs and livelihoods, um, and I think that's why we also need a universal basic income, because it's important to make sure that we provide uh, a sort of safety net that catches all the people who can slip through the cracks whilst this transition is happening. So I think a universal basic income uh, paired with a transition to a clean and caring economy, I think, is the way to the future uh, and will make sure that our country stays prosperous and can get even more prosperous in the future. And now for universal basic income, um, for those who don't know, in Ontario, the previous Ontario government actually had implemented a trial version of a universal basic income with, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, three cities in Ontario were yep. got that. The only reason I know that is because one of the communities was just north of my hometown. So I was like, gotcha. dang. <laughs> so I know. Yeah. I, and, and that was such a fantastic pilot, right? This uh, basic income pilot that was instituted uh, was to be studied over five years and see the results. Many different pilots have been instituted, including one in Scandinavian countries. And the results have been very positive. Um, you know, one of the biggest criticisms of the basic income is that people are not productive or people People will just, you know, stop uh, doing any work whatsoever or just will become a welfare state. um, And and I think that is a very 
very misguided look at it because um, what you what what happens when you let people keep the income as well as work is is people want to get more and more money and so that drives um, your your incentives and uh, one of the things that we saw in even in in the pilot in Ontario before it was cancelled was that so many people you know whether that's students who wanted to complete an education whether that's people who wanted to start their own business or whether that was just um, you know uh, people who were kind of struggling to get day to day and then now finally had um, uh, the income source to stabilize their lives and then build on it to provide more input to the area economy I mean all those things are are such um, great positives that are endorsed by economists on any kind of ideological spectrum. Uh, I mean, basic income was was even uh, uh, endorsed by Milton Friedman, uh, and wow. so there's these uh, there's there's a certain uh, political um, uh, there's an there's a opportunity for a political uh, nonpartisanship uh, to come into play here because I think all political parties are for it but for some reason or another some political parties tend to oppose it uh, but their but their basis should be uh, in favor of it but at the same time and I, I, I Okay, I can see both sides of it. I I agree that we need one, but at the same time, if we don't have the money for one, how do we afford it? Because that's at the end of right. the day, everything comes down to money. So right. um, the Ontario government was massively in debt. It is still right. in debt. It is probably going right. to get worse with this COVID-19. So right. how can we afford a basic income for everyone when we can't right. afford to pay the bills? Right. So I think uh, – so one of the things um, that Mike recently did was he hosted a big town hall, uh, virtual town hall um, on um, on Zoom and Facebook Live. Sorry. And he uh, – it was on the basic income. And he had three guests on. And one of the biggest things that people took, took away from that was the ability to pay for things. And the – the easiest way to do this is to increase GST by 3%, and that will pay for it all. GST or PST? GST. Okay. Yeah. And and so if you if you increase it by 3%, that will pay for all uh, Canada for it to to introduce a basic income, and so though there are, the solutions are are right there. I mean, and you can you can do all sorts of innovative solutions on there to make sure that the the poorest uh, aren't affected by it, including some sort of progressive tax system. Um, so. so there are incentives to do this. T today itself, the government, I mean, you know, was uh, announced that they wouldn't uh, bail out any companies who had offshore tax accounts or, or invested in tax havens. Um, and uh, I mean, that is indicative of the direction that we need to go into is to have economic justice ingrained in this recovery of the economy, because we need to ensure that our most vulnerable are protected because they're the ones who have been most damaged by this crisis. Because as much as we like to say that the COVID crisis is affecting us all the same, it, it really isn't. Uh, it's a very inequitable, um, um, uh, uh, there's an inequitable um, uh, distribution of suffering. Uh, because of this crisis. And, and you're seeing that every day because uh, 
the people with and I, and I hate to put it with the people with jobs and the people who don't have jobs the people with jobs are still working they're still surviving they still have that money the people without jobs who are now waiting for the federal government to uh, help them um, are lagging behind because their bills are piling up they're struggling day to day so I, I, I agree wholeheartedly that this pandemic has shown that while everyone thought it was a kumbaya community and even though it wasn't it has uh, shown that this society was not sustainable for a long period of time because we are now seeing uh, and I, I don't want to use this word but class warfare where the, the haves and the haves not right so right yeah, I mean, it, it's it's absolutely right. There's there's a certain amount of um, I, I mean, it's a great the virus is a great amplifier, right, of society, and 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 the inequities are amplified. The um, uh, kind of um, baked in um, um, experiences of people are amplified, including mental health issues, uh, things of that nature. So there's uh, it's just it's just putting into uh, the four uh, problems that we ourselves uh, new to some degree, but never really addressed completely, including, for example, now you're seeing uh, how poorly and um, disproportionately uh, long-term cares are being hit. And that's because of the state of affairs that have gone on there for decades um, that could have been so much better. And those kinds of uh, care systems that we need to reform now going forward um, will be at the very center of this discussion. So um, my last set of questions sort of moves off provincial politics. Uh, There is a Green Party leadership vote happening sometime here soon. There have been candidates announcing. They just had another one announced today. I'm not sure if you saw, but former Environment Minister from Ontario, Glenn Murray, just announced that he is running. Uh, Have you picked your horse in this battle yet, or are you still waiting to see who else is going to announce? I I I I don't think I'm going to be uh, publicly supporting any one uh, candidate um, because I think it's important um, for me as part of the Green Party of Ontario uh, to be able to work with any of the candidates who get elected and all of them are uh, fantastic um, and and have been uh, at the very uh, forefront of GPC politics and values. Um, Glenn, um, Anime, David, obviously are kind of the the front runners right now and uh and i've talked to all three of them and uh, they i think e- either either one of them would make a fantastic leader for the gpc and yeah looking forward to see how the race runs out i mean it's going to be very exciting um there's all, all like everyone involved there are such uh phenomenal and um dedicated candidates so i'm really looking forward to it Awesome. Well, Abhijit, I want to thank you very much for this. Greatly appreciate it. I know you probably have other things to do right now, so I don't want to take up more of your time. I, we've gone for an hour. Uh, I've learned a lot for, about you. I didn't realize a lot about you either. So I want to thank you very much for doing this. Of course. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks uh, for doing this, Christopher. Hey, no problem. Have yourself an excellent day and uh, stay safe. Uh, just make sure. Hopefully you will be able to go get out and go for a walk here shortly. Yeah, here's hoping. Knock on wood, eh? Yeah, me too. <laughs> Thanks very much. 
And once again, thank you to our guests for coming in and sitting down today. It was greatly appreciated. As I've said in the introduction, this podcast is about having a conversation. I learned a lot in this interview, and I really hope you did too. This podcast couldn't have happened without our listeners. From here in Alberta to across Canada and around the world, I want to take this moment and thank everyone for listening to this podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. The links are in the show notes. Or visit our website at www.crossborderinterviews.ca. We will be back here next Saturday with another great episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. This podcast is produced and owned by Miranda Brown and Associates. I'm your host, Christopher Brown. Once again, have a safe and hopefully talkative week.